Greetings, and welcome to the Green Majority. We are somehow Canada's longest-running environmental news hour, is what I'm supposed to say. And uh, we are broadcast here out of 89.5 FM CIUT in Toronto and on many community radio stations across this country and are available on podcast platforms. My name is David Franklin Irwin Hostetter. I'm Stefan Christian Irwin Hostetter. And Lauren Elizabeth Corlatour is not here this week. We are, as always, going to talk about a whole, not actually not very much news. And then we're going to talk a lot about Enbridge and Line 3 and Line 5 and a recent German court ruling. And then Stefan is going to interview Sebla Samuel, the Global Cities Campaign Lead for the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty. And then Stefan is, and then Amir Jandali is going to interview Andreas Benzing, the Executive Director of New York Passive House. But first, Stefan is going to say something about Keystone XL. That is true. So the big news of today, and by today, I mean Wednesday when we record this show, is that for the third and hopefully final time, we are very excited to report that Keystone XL is dead. First vetoed by Obama, then revived by Trump, then canceled again by Biden. The company that owns Keystone XL TC Energy has announced that the project is officially dead. The price tag for this comes at a loss of $1.3 billion for the Alberta government, who last year, just months prior to an election in which they knew if Biden won, the project would be canceled, invested $1.5 billion into the project, plus offering billions more in loan guarantees. And so with this news, we ask ourselves, if this might be the thing that finally tips the myopic viewpoint of oil or nothing that the UCP government has shown in Alberta. And I say we ask ourselves that because the leader of the UCP and man who decided to make this terrible, terrible investment, Jason Kenney, is unavailable to answer questions as he's still busy violating COVID protocols to drink whiskey at the Sky Palace. But on to the headlines. The worst drought ever recorded by the U.S. Drought Monitor has gripped the western United States. The governor of Utah recently initiated three days of collective prayer in hopes of drawing God's mercy to bring them some rain. Brazil is also on drought alert as it faces its worst dry spell in 91 years. Researchers were recently shocked to find that a single wildfire in California last year killed 10% of the world's giant sequoias, which are usually able to survive such fires. The Associated Press quotes Christy Brigham of the Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks as stating, quote, I cannot overemphasize how mind-blowing this is for all of us. These trees have lived for thousands of years 
they've survived dozens of wildfires already. Joe Biden's climate plan, meanwhile, is being rejected by the congressional Republicans he has for some reason been trying to work with. Biden has also reportedly offered to only raise the corporate tax rate from 21% to 25% rather than to 28%. The U.S. corporate tax rate was 35% before Trump lowered it significantly in 2017. Here in Canada, the Silcotin Nation is reporting that critical salmon runs are at risk of collapse and is calling on British Columbia and Canada to escalate efforts to fix the damage that was caused by a landslide. Indigenous leaders and elders recently held a ceremony for Fraser River salmon as Trans Mountain prepares to drill under the river. The Argo Group, meanwhile, which has been ensuring the Trans Mountain expansion pipeline, recently announced it will not be renewing its insurance policy when it expires in August. Another insurance company down uh, in the fight to keep Trans Mountain going. To me, it's nonsensical uh, for insurance companies to continue to protect fossil fuel infrastructure as one of the industries that will be hit hardest by climate change is insurance. You know, they benefit from consistency, and that is the one thing climate change definitely will not bring. And right now, it feels like most insurance companies are at best reluctantly following along and trying to get folks to protect their basements from flooding. But what we need for them is to stand up and really take some leadership in the financial services sector. The banks certainly aren't going to, so the place is open. Wait, what do you think these insurance companies should do? Like, if I ran an insurance company, I would be investing as much money as I can into trying to ensure that all of these new fossil fuel infrastructures do not get made because they will inherently harm their business. You know, we're already seeing insurance companies pull out of places where they can no longer believe that they won't, you know, whether it's fire protection in in California or whether it's flooding in, in the Houston area, insurance companies are increasingly becoming, refusing to insure houses because of climate catastrophe or climate-related catastrophe. And so what we need from them is for them to, you know, be the investors we need, be the leaders in the financial industry, be the ones who will speak truth to these banks, will speak truth to these pipelines, instead of just sort of being shamed until they all agree to not invest in one thing. They are the reason these new infrastructure projects are allowed to keep getting built. If they couldn't find insurance, they couldn't build them. And the only reason to do this, if you're an insurance company, is to try to maximize your profits right now at the cost of long-term gains. And that is bad for them and bad for the world. And I am sweating like a fish. Enbridge. Indigenous water protectors and their accomplices are increasing pressure in opposition to Enbridge's Line 3 pipeline in northern Minnesota. The project is a replacement and expansion of an existing pipeline that was built in 1968 and running 1,100 miles from the Albertan oil sands to Superior, Wisconsin. The expansion... Uh, would add 337 miles and cross over a lot of new territory, including over 200 bodies of fresh water. 
the expansion would also add hundreds of thousands of oil per day to the pipeline's capacity. Water protector Winona LaDuke recently stated that Enbridge has at most 40% of the pipeline complete, still has uh, 22 rivers to cross with a giant drill, and is attempting to get as much built as possible before a court case could end up revoking their permit later this month. 250 pipeline opponents have been arrested since December, with around 150 arrested this week alone, as more activists keep pouring into the area with the warm weather. In what the Indigenous Environmental Network has called Minnesota's largest ever anti-pipeline mobilization, over 1,000 people halted construction on the 7th of June, while another 500 people shut down a pump station. Both actions are part of the Treaty People Gathering, a mobilization effort planned by climate justice organizations and indigenous groups like the Ginyu Collective, an indigenous women and two-spirit-led water and land defense group. Authorities protecting the Canadian Corporation recently flew a Customs and Border Protection helicopter low enough to kick up sand and pebbles and batter the protesters. Enbridge's Line 3 is connected to its Line 5 pipeline, as they are both part of its network of pipes running from the tar sands down through the United States. Enbridge has, since January, been defying the governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, who ordered Line 5 to be shut down because it's very old and risks spilling into the Straits of Mackinac, which connect Lake Huron and Lake Michigan. Line 5 is at risk of being struck by ship anchors as the straits are very busy shipping lanes. No oil has yet leaked from the pipeline being struck by anchors, but it has spilled over 1 million gallons in other places, and so far Enbridge has been able to completely defy the state of Michigan. Both Line 3 and Line 5 violate indigenous treaty rights, which include fishing, hunting, and other types of land use. Treaty rights protectors argue that pipelines inevitably spill, and such spills destroy the ecosystems upon which their lives and livelihoods depend. Line 5 also runs through reserve land. The Bad River Band of Lake Superior Chippewa in Wisconsin are suing Enbridge for $45 million and demanding the removal of the section of Line 5 that runs through their land. Returning to the current mobilization against Line 3, Winona LaDuke recently said on Democracy Now!, quote, We're expecting more and more people will be coming to northern Minnesota as Enbridge ramps up. We have 22 rivers to cross, and everybody in Minnesota has a canoe and a kayak, and millions of people don't want this pipeline. The actions in Minnesota this week and how U.S. authorities continue to harass and intimidate and arrest land defenders harkens back strongly to Standing Rock. And unless the Biden administration steps in, we could very well see this reach a comparable size. There was a time when we were doing this show that when the completion of Keystone XL was more certain than I think anyone feels about Line 3 right now. The social license for oil infrastructure is gone. The International Energy Agency's report has shown that the fiscal license for new oil infrastructure is gone. All that is left on the side of these being built is the money of billionaires and the inertia of large institutions which were built on extractive colonial practices and so cannot imagine a world without them. I will say it here. 
if line three goes down, we may never see another new oil pipeline built on this continent. At this point, the question is how much money will we waste building the past before we accept the inevitable future? now on to a German court ruling that happened in April. So at the end of April, Germany's constitutional court ruled in favor of youth activists who sued their government for its inaction on climate change. The court ruled that the country's climate law was partly unconstitutional because it did not provide a clear enough plan for achieving net zero emissions unfairly leaving the burden of climate change mitigation to future generations. The activists, supported by German Watch and Greenpeace, successfully argued that by not taking stronger steps to reduce carbon emissions, their government was infringing on the fundamental freedoms of future generations. In response to the ruling, the German government updated its proposed climate legislation to require steeper and more rapid cuts to carbon emissions. It proposed a reduction of 66% of emissions by 2030 and net zero by 2045, compared with 1990 levels, while an earlier bill proposed a reduction of 55% by 2030 and net zero by 2050. The new legislation, if passed, would make Germany's reduction targets the second most ambitious after the UK. A new study by three think tanks, however, which is the first of its kind to analyze in detail how to achieve these targets, has found that for Germany to achieve net zero emissions by 2045, it will have to rely heavily on technology that does not yet exist. Apart from measures like increasing energy efficiency and replacing all internal combustion vehicles with electric alternatives, the study argues that the country will also have to rapidly create an as-yet non-existent infrastructure of hydrogen technology and large-scale large carbon capture, injecting as much as 73 million tons of CO2 back into the earth per year. Nevertheless, if passed, the bill will be a major success for, for climate action globally as Germany is among the richest, most powerful, and technologically advanced industrial nations. Similarly, the climate ruling sets a hopeful new precedent for litigation-based climate action strategies. The use of judicial systems in fighting climate change has risen dramatically since 2015, with mixed results. This ruling follows years of political support for green policies in Germany, student strikes, other mass actions, and strong political representation at the highest levels of government. The Green Party of Germany is currently the most popular party in the country. Following the ruling, Isabel Gerritsen, writing for Climate Change News, took stock of the success and failures of climate lawsuits, noting that because children cannot legally vote, they lack political representation and therefore the court system is the only way to protect their rights. In addition, successful cases in Colombia, Portugal, and the Netherlands have also been filed against governments rather than against the corporations doing the actual emitting. On the other hand, holding polluters accountable remains difficult. 
oil companies, banks, and other large corporations implicated in large-scale carbon emissions continue to evade accountability, and lawsuits like the one filed by New York City against five multinational firms continue to be dismissed. Those same corporations, armed with armies of highly paid lawyers, have been filing their own lawsuits against legislation seeking even minor measures to mitigate ecological annihilation. When lawsuits against companies do succeed, if it often only results in civil penalties, which amount to a negligible cost of doing business, like the $14.5 million Exxon was ordered to pay in March on an 11-year-old lawsuit about the pollution of one refinery. All this is to say that the court system is a poor substitute for mass action and political influence. It is designed to be a painstakingly slow, expensive, and wearying process. It relies on past legal precedents that reflect often outmoded historical contexts and interpretations. There remains always the possibility of appeal or of counter-lawsuits appealing climate-friendly laws. Suing the government also drains public resources and in general alienates people from their public representatives. Finally, the justice system is an authoritarian rather than a democratic institution. Judges are appointed, not elected, and cannot easily be held accountable. So while some rulings, as in the case of Germany in April, may feel vindicating in the short term, they all tend to have an air of arbitrariness and illegitimacy that stems from this fundamental lack of popular consent, from the lack of public input in the deliberations, and from the elite and above-the-fray status of judicial institutions. As a result, over time, a reliance on the courts to decide contentious social and political issues can actually undermine the kind of popular organizing needed to build lasting and positive social change. While I share the skepticism in the belief that the courts will save us, what we have seen in past social movements is that no single strategy gets the goods, but rather a win in one battlefield can support the effort in another. And this decision in Germany aligns with one in Australia in late May that determined that their environmental minister had a duty of care to protect young people, though I'll also note that in doing so did not grant the injunction against the coal mine that they were seeking. And here in Canada, seven youth will see their will see their day in court as they argue that Ontario's 2030 GHD targets is too weak and must be struck down. But the main part of this, I think, comes down to is accountability. If you have a government that is saying it will do something and may even have laws with their stated goal, how can constituents ensure that this is actually met? One avenue is lawsuits, but it is far preferable if the government sets up its own mechanisms and this is what Bill C-12 is supposed to do here in Canada. You may remember us covering this before previously on the show, but right now it's looking less and less likely that this bill is going to pass Parliament as it's stalled out once again. If this bill is not passed in the coming few weeks, it likely will not be passed before a fall election, at which point we don't know whether or not we'll see it come back again at all. And, toward, and because of this, environmental groups across the country have come together this week to call for it to be passed, as a law on the books is a significant and important step towards holding the government accountable. And now we'll head to a music break, and when we come back, we'll be joined by Sebla Samuel of the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty. 
And if you hear this on or before Monday the 14th, there's a launch of the campaign for Toronto to adopt the treaty uh, on the 14th. And you can check our show post for a link to that. Super excited to be joined by Sebla Samuel, the Global Cities Campaign Lead for the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty Initiative. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So for the, our listeners who may not be as aware uh, of the basics of this conversation, what is the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty and what is its aim? Yeah, so the treaty is a global campaign for a fossil fuel phase out and a global just transition. It's grounded in the understanding that we need bold, immediate and really collective action to address the climate crisis and that the main cause of the climate crisis is fossil fuels. So coal and oil and gas are responsible for around 80% of all carbon emissions since the Industrial Revolution. So we need to be phasing out fossil fuel production, ending all new expansion and fast tracking solutions and a just transition for all workers and communities and countries. So the treaty is really grounded in three pillars. The first is non-proliferation. So ending the exploration and expansion and production of new fossil fuel reserves anywhere in the world. The second is global disarmament. So we're phasing out existing stockpiles and reserves of fossil fuels in line with a 1.5 degree pathway. And the last one is a just transition, as I mentioned before, a just energy transition for all. And then in addition to the campaign, we're also developing a, a research base. So there's going to be a 1.5 degree modeling pathway that will be soon released that I can share once that's available to strengthen our campaign and the case for the treaty. And also we're co-developing with Carbon Tracker, a global registry of fossil fuels that's going to be launched hopefully by COP26. And it's going to serve like an open access public database on fossil fuel reserves and a license resources and production globally, because although this does exist in different forms, there's a huge paywalls to be able to access this information. And the idea is that this would be an open access public database to increase accountability and transparency. So we're a global team and then we are, we're directed by a steering committee. And then we have partners on all the continents and we have about hundreds of organizations that we've worked with that have already endorsed the treaty, which is great. Amazing. So just to even a step further back, perhaps, into terms of context, what's the history behind yeah. this type of treaty? There are many different types of treaties that have gone around climate change or fossil fuels. What makes this different uh, from other agreements? Yeah, this treaty definitely takes inspiration from the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty of the 1960s. It shares the same pillars of non-proliferation and global disarmament. And well, there's this peace, peaceful transition, we said just transition. And basically, it's set to complement a lot of the climate treaties that already exist, because of course, the Paris Agreement exists. This focuses a lot on emissions reduction and demand side policy, but it doesn't mention fossil fuels. And we think that this is really necessary since it's the, the majority and the bulk of the emissions are coming from this source that we really need to stop fossil fuels at their source because the Paris Agreement for now is leading us on a huge overshoot of a three degree warming by the end of the century. 
and we need to limit it to 1.5. So the idea is that the treaty can fill this gap around supply side policy on oil, coal, and gas by stopping fossil fuels and also complementing a lot of really important movements that are happening all over the world on the ground, such as frontline struggles against fossil fuel extraction, um, finance campaigns around divesting from fossil fuels or any fossil fuel subsidies or stop the money pipeline. There's a lot of important finance campaigns happening, fossil free politics. So this kind of fits in the mosaic of all these different campaigns, but tackling it from a different angle. Awesome. And so this is the famed follow-up question I did not prepare you for, so I apologize in advance. It's hopefully a simple question. How's it going? Like we've seen earlier in May, we saw a series of defeats of oil companies, whether it was in the courtrooms with the Dutch Shell or in the boardrooms with the shareholder revolts, both at Chevron and Exxon. And so I'm curious, has that kind of momentum shifted over to this campaign you're running? Yeah. Like how's the campaign going? It's going really well. There's been so much momentum happening. I only joined at the beginning of May, so it's been amazing to see everything moving at lightning speed. Yeah, right before the President Biden's Climate Leaders Summit, right before Earth Day in April, there was an endorsement by 101 Nobel laureates of the treaty, including the Dalai Lama. And there's been really growing support from the academic community, from scientists and researchers and professors with around 1,300, 400, keeps going up, endorsing the treaty. There's more than 400 organizations globally that are calling for a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty. And there's also really growing support from cities, which is what I'm working on. The first city globally to endorse was Vancouver. LA recently endorsed. Barcelona's also endorsed. There's a couple um, small councils in the UK that have also endorsed. One of them is an ex-coal mining town. So it's really amazing to see also communities that have been dependent on fossil fuels looking for a different alternative. And Moreland Council in Melbourne, Australia recently endorsed, but we're pushing campaigns all over the world. So if also anyone is interested in uh, running a campaign for their city, great to reach out. And it's amazing that Toronto is also doing the same. So it's been growing and rising in momentum. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Yeah, let's dive a little deeper into the cities because that obviously is, is where you come from. And also, as you mentioned, there's some murmurs of moving this forward towards city council here in Toronto. And so, yeah, what role do cities play in pushing this forward? Obviously, most international treaties are normally country to country. And so what's the role for cities here? Yeah, so I guess cities play a really important role in in pushing their national governments to take the action that is needed. And and the idea behind harnessing the power of cities in the campaign is allowing that pressure to rise from below. So it can be a combination of movements on the ground, city councils that declare that they're endorsing the treaty. Also, they can have influence over their jurisdictions, but obviously it sends a signal. So for example, if it's Canada, Vancouver's already endorsed, should Toronto endorse in other cities, then it makes it a lot Well, there's a lot more pressure on Canada to start thinking about endorsing such a treaty. And there's also the history of these nuclear weapon free zones in this process of the treaty that were able to put a lot of pressure on their national government to be able to take action on nuclear disarmament. Also because cities are super vulnerable to climate change. There's so many coastal cities all around the world that will not survive with, with substantial sea level rise need to adapt rapidly and they can take the action that they need in a way that is much more swift than a national government can. 
it's also there's been cities all across the world that have declared these climate emergencies, but we want to take that forward and say, what can that look like on the ground and give cities the agency to make that possible? We're also obviously all going through the pandemic and seeing what is our recovery going to look like and how can cities lead in, in that sense of, of making fossil fuels part of their history and not part of their present. So we think it's a really good kind of mobilizing tool because obviously it's going to be easier also to get cities to endorse before it is to get a whole national government, but it does send a signal. And we think also like the journey is just as important as the end point because you're reframing the narrative of you're framing fossil fuels as weapons of mass destruction because they are causing 80% of, of the climate emergency. And I think that's important. And so once you see cities go in this domino effect, it changes the messaging and creates a signal to national governments too that there's a big shift in what people want in their cities and in their countries. For sure. If folks have heard this and they are interested at maybe perhaps we are syndicated across Canada, so maybe they are another city in Canada, or maybe they're just interested in the campaign, how can they get involved and how can they find, learn out more? Okay, so the website is fossilfueltreaty.org and there's a ton of resources on the website. There's a campaign resources hub. So it shows if you want to start your own city's campaign, here are different resources you can use. Here's a social media pack. We have the website for now in English, French, and Spanish, but we want to translate to a bunch of different languages to make it as accessible as possible. And then you can reach out to us directly. My email is sublettfossilfueltreaty.org. And yeah, basically we can also connect you. For example, I connected Friends of Earth Sweden is running a city's campaign for different Swedish cities. I connected them with the Toronto Climate Action Network because I think it's good if you can share what your struggles are what's effective, what's led to the most progress. So we can also connect different campaigns. We have organizations around the world that are endorsing. So if you want to connect with organizations in your city, also reach out. We can make that happen. The idea is that this is a whole global coalition. We're all way stronger when we connect with each other. So this is also a hub to, to connect on fossil fuel phase out campaigns. That makes sense. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Keep up the great Thank work. Thank you for having me all the way from Ethiopia. Yeah, you may be the, one of the furthest away guests we've ever had. So <laughs> you hold that honor. And now we'll go for a short break and come back with Amir Jindali's interview with Andreas Benzing of New York Passive House. Thank you for listening to The Green Majority. We are entirely listener-supported, so if you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. And thank you so much to everyone who's already donating. Peace. Welcome back to The Green Majority. In our ongoing effort to answer the call that we've heard from you, the listeners, for more solutions-based coverage, I'm excited to present to you our next segment, an interview with our an interview between our New York correspondent, Amir Jindali, and Andreas Benzing, the executive director of the New York Passive House, which is on a mission to make international Passive House standards adopted by the industry professionals, government, and homeowners through, through public outreach, education, and advocacy for healthy, comfortable, and energy-efficient building 
energy efficient built environment. We cannot solve the climate crisis without massive improvements to buildings, and Passive House is one of the deeply needed pathways. We join them in conversation. I wonder if we can start out by, could you introduce yourself and give us a few lines about your organization? Yeah, so my name is Andreas Benzing. I'm actually an architect trained in Germany, and I've worked in Germany for a couple of years at Hans Kollhoff's office and came then to, to New York and opened my own office, specialized mainly in high-performance passive buildings. In 2010, we formed with a couple of colleagues at New York Passive House, which is a non-for-profit organization trying to offer that climate solution for buildings. And we, we have membership, mainly architects and engineers and manufacturers. And we do a lot of outreach events and try really to find the correct uh, way forward and find the solutions for buildings to contribute you know, to the problem of climate change. And in New York Passive House, first of all, it's a concept, right? The idea of a passive house. Yeah, passive house. Passive house is more than just a concept. In its principle, it's a concept, a building design and building construction concept, which is based on a couple of principles. It is also a certification system. But it's also, uh, it's more than that. It's more like an ecosystem, I I would call it. So in Tales, certification of components, for example, windows and HVAC systems, certification and training of professionals like architects and engineers. It's it's a certification of buildings itself. So it's a third party quality insurance program. And of course, it's also a, a, a fantastic tool with an energy modeling component to it. Okay. At a high level, what we're talking about here is the sustainability of buildings in the as it relates to humans' life on the planet. The as our role in in nature is to build our systems in a way that are in harmony with nature, regenerating it, supporting nature's life support systems, as opposed to degenerating it. And passive house concept certification process and an ecosystem of ways to make buildings more sustainable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, making buildings more efficient in terms of efficient. energy building use, the overall energy building use, and therefore reducing, of course, the carbon emission or the greenhouse emissions of a, of a building. And so we can't do that only once we really reduce uh, the energy load of a building, like heating, cooling, domestic hot water, all those things which uses a lot of energy. We can reduce it by up to 80 to 90%. So it's a big jump from just air sealing or small measures. And therefore, once we do that and reduce that heating, cooling, and domestic water loads to a very low level, you can actually switch your building to all electric. And that's that's really the goal. That's so the goal. Right. We don't want to use fossil fuels to burn fossil fuels to heat or operate our buildings. We really want to convert them to electric so that electricity can be delivered uh, sustainably through wind or you know solar sources. Okay, so let's ground this conversation a little bit and say, so I'm sitting inside of my apartment or I'm standing outside of a building in Brooklyn or for our listeners, mostly in Canada are sitting in their homes. What is, what's the 101 way for me to begin thinking about 
the building that I'm currently in? How do I even start thinking about it in terms of its efficiency? Do I think about the windows? Do I think about what the building is made out of? Do I think about what's coming through my electric, electrical ports, my outlets? How do I start thinking about the sustainability of a building? Yeah, that you are living in a very inefficient building when you have a thermal comfort problems in the wintertime, for example. So if you have a draft, okay. a cold draft hitting you, or you, you have a very poorly insulated wall or windows, which, which means you have a very low surface temperature, that those are all parts of thermal comfort problems. Once, once you go into a passive house you would, in, in the wintertime or in a very hot summer day, you would realize you step into the building. That's how I explain it usually. And it feels like a spring day inside. It just feels like perfect. The temperature is good. It's very fresh air, right? Because we bring in fresh air into the building. And it just feels every day like a spring day. Even if there's a snowstorm outside and very cold. Or if it's a, a very hot and humid day outside. It's just amazing. And it takes a fraction of the energy to, to maintain that indoor uh, thermal comfort quality. Thermal comfort quality. Can we call that our sort of master qualitative metric? That if you can feel the thermal comfort, then you can think that, okay, I'm in an efficient building. In our, like, I live in an apartment building in, in New York City, and we have big radiators underneath the window. Usually we place them underneath the window because we are offsetting the cold drafts coming from your window. So we, we place the radiator underneath the window and we blast a lot of steam heat in, into the apartment. And then of course it gets very hot and we, what, we do, what do we do? We open our windows in mm. order to you know, cool it down again. That, that kind of a system of course requires a lot of energy and wastes tons of energy and, of course, expels a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. So in, in a passive house, you wouldn't have to do that. I mean, you can open your window if you like to, but it, technically you, you, you bring in fresh air continuously and with a heat recovery. So you, the, the outgoing air is actually transferring that energy to the incoming airstream. And therefore, you have always fresh air inside your building, but you don't have the energy loss associated with it. And your window in Canada, in, in New York, that's the same. You probably would have triple pin windows. They are much higher quality windows. It, you create a much higher quality building envelope or shelf for your occupants. So far, what I'm hearing is I'm hearing about shell. I'm hearing about insulation. I'm hearing about windows. And so what I'm wondering is if we know that the desired state Mm -hmm. is to be inside a house that is most efficient and that feels like a crisp uh, spring day. The factors that contribute to that are, are what? I've heard windows, I've heard shells, I've heard insulation. H help me demystify this. Okay. Yeah, so if, if you think a passive house for a building, once you apply it, be it a new construction or an existing construction, you really think about your building as a system. It's not just your building shell, which has a high wall, but it's also matched with the correct mechanical systems. So once we insulate, once we make the building more airtight, once we use heat recovery ventilation system and correct windows with orientation and shading, then we reduce the heating cooling load of a building quite significantly. And we can use different mechanical systems, which most likely are heat, 
heat pump system based and they run together with your building as a system. And uh, therefore you can, you can think about the building more comprehensively, basically. And it's not just one, you do one thing and then hopefully that does something, but you really design your building as a entire system. And only then you, you can achieve a very high efficiency for your building. But also you can provide your, your occupants a much higher indoor air quality and thermal comfort. So really what we're talking about here is just making sure that the energy needed to heat or cool the building is not being lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can, you can think it uh, almost like a refrigerator. The better you insulate that refrigerator box and sure. the more airtight it is, the less you have to put uh, cooling into that thing to keep that stable temperature. Okay, so the emissions that are created are basically resulting from poor insulation and kind of the loss of energy, the entropy of the way buildings are, are, yeah. are currently are. Yeah, it's a result of very poorly designed and built buildings. All right, so there's a, a different approach for a new building that's coming up from scratch and then existing buildings. And, and so talk to me about that. So with an existing building, so... New York City, I don't know how many of the current buildings are still going to be here in 20 years. Mm-hmm. I don't know what needs to occur for the current buildings. What do we need to do with existing buildings is my question. Uh, yeah, so let's start with new buildings, which is okay. course, much easier because you, you start from scratch. It's fairly easy to understand the principles, how they implement right. it. And you can also do it very cost effective, right? Because you're basically shifting cost from very big complicated mechanic systems into your building shell and you can almost think it as cost neutral it, it depends on your team on the size of the building and the use of the building but it, it's a very i would say between zero and five percent more cost to build a passive house from scratch than a, a regular code standard building with existing building, of course, that's our biggest challenge, especially here in New York City. We have a lot of large old buildings. They're going to be around for another 50, 100 years. Who knows, right? And so they have to be retrofitted as well. With retrofitting a building to pass for standard, you would probably go step by step. So if your building needs, let's say, a new roof, you would basically do a pass for master plan calculation for your building. And you would know exactly what the specifications are for each component. And so if your roof is next to be renovated, you would know you need an R value, so a specific R value for your roof. And you would execute that roof according to your overall energy plan for the building. And if your window is next to be renovated, then you would specify a window which fits into the overall plan for the energy passive plan. And once after 20 or 30 years, all the components are updated, then you would have high performance passphones. And what's a, have you, can you think of off the top of your head, a, a case study of a building that went from zero to 100, for example, or like a building that you saw that was retrofitted and you're like, yes, this is what we need to replicate everywhere. We have in New York city, we have actually a lot of landmarked brownstone buildings in Brooklyn. Cool. Which, are, which are renovated to passport standard. And that's actually very popular because the, once someone really got to renovate a townhouse, which a lot of people do, it would be a good idea to actually renovate it to a high energy standard because you're not going to redo that renovation for another 50 years. And it affords you a much better building, but also you can switch your building uh, already to an all-electric 
which in some portions of Brooklyn you have to do because we have gas moratorium in some places where you actually can't uh, touch a building to gas anymore. So in one of these landmark brownstone buildings, for example, the things that need to be retrofitted are, you mentioned roof, you mentioned windows. I'm assuming insulation. Yeah. So if you have a landmark and you do a, a gut renovation, you would start to insulate most like from the interior side of your building, which is a little bit more tricky for different reasons, but it can be done. And you would also implement an airtight layer and wrap your entire building from floor to walls to ceiling with a new anti-layer and insulation layer. And you would implement high-performance windows and fresh air ventilation system with heat recovery. And I have an anecdote for, we, we did a passive house in Scarsdale. Okay. And it's a single family. It's fairly large, over 5,000 <clears> square <throat> feet building. It's new construction. And we got Con Edison to connect the gas and the gas meter. And so the owner received after the first month, he received the bill and it was like $400 or $500 or something, but he used only five terms of gas. And so he called them and say, you, you might have made a mistake. You overcharged me. That's you charged me like for 50 terms instead of the five I used. And they responded, oh yeah, sorry. We saw that we thought uh, your five terms was a mistake. And they applied the average usage of gas in the area for your building. And he said, no, it's not, no mistake. Uh, you should come back and read the meter. That, that's what they did. They came back. They, they were reading the meter and said, yeah, okay, it's five terms only. They couldn't believe it. And they revised the bill. And the next month, the exact same thing happened. They, they just could not imagine that a building of that size could use so little energy. And they, they thought it must be a mistake and apply to like the average gas usage of a building in that, of that size in that area. In Scarsdale, our building runs on heat pumps. We use uh, heat pump systems for heating and cooling. And so that, that of course reduces your electric load by a factor of three roughly compared to if you would use electrical resistance for heating. Okay, so we have set the stage here for the some vocabulary and language around renovating a house, a home, an existing building to become a passive house. And we want to get away from gas. Mm -hmm. We want to electrify the building. Yep. We want to make sure that the roof is insulated properly. The high performance windows are insulated properly, implementing airtight and insulation layers for the facade and the, the building structure. And we want fresh air with heat recovery systems and perhaps shading of the windows or that kind of thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that sets the stage for a renovated building. As we zoom out a little bit, now we see that this building is actually a part of greater systems. The gas line that comes in, which you said there's a moratorium. And then I'm wondering also, as an architect that might be consulted to come in to re renovate a building, what from the municipal level, from the government level, can the architect align themselves with? Are there grants that are available to subsidize? Are there other regulations imposed by the city and the government that need to be uh, followed? How is this process being made easier for the people that need to do the work? Mm -hmm. And what's getting in the way? I think, yeah, that, that's a very good question. Also a complex question to answer, but I've, I'll give you an example. In New York City, we have uh, what is called the Climate Mobilization Act. Local right. Law 97, which basically is a carbon limit law and which will in specific uh, limits on 
carbon emission of buildings and they go in by I think 29, 35 and then 2050 and at at that point, we will uh, have to perform pass force level uh, all buildings. And if you don't achieve those levels, carbon levels, then you have to pay a fine. Anyone who is building a new building in New York City and is not thinking about the 2050 level already will be a renovation case pretty soon. So you have to start to think about your energy performance of the building because that law is kicking in. In New York State, we have a similar uh, approach, which is called 80 by 50, so 80% reduction of greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. And I think that the thinking on the state level is, at least for single family and smaller buildings, to make them all electric quite soon, which which means that if, if you as an architect and as an engineer are still building buildings to the standard energy performance, then it's going to be difficult for you to to achieve those buildings in five, 10 years when you really have to design a building to a much higher performance standard. And so it makes business sense to now get trained and understand how you would deliver all electric building, which can be run cost effectively. I love it. Okay, Andreas, this is great. I think we're nearing the end of this. I feel super equipped with this language. Thank you for this. I think, I guess to round us off, this is one part of the puzzle to insulate and make our buildings more efficient, to electrify them. So the other part of the puzzle is these moratoriums and these laws and these regulations. There's this other part of the puzzle that making sure the electricity we're getting in the first place is coming from clean sources. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to that for a moment? Yeah, that portion is rather, I wouldn't say easy, but it's uh, manageable to achieve, right? Because one can come in and start producing more energy sustainably, be it solar or be it wind power. Cars, for example, is also a much easier problem to solve because we can come in with Tesla, which then means the competition has to pick up. And you sure. know, in the in cycle of 10 years, all cars are electric. Buildings are very tricky because they are around for a long time. We built them for 100 years or 50, 100 years. And it's very cost intensive to, to do something on your building. Mm-hmm. So you have to be extremely smart and very, you have to have a foresight for your building mm-hmm. and a very good plan in order to achieve that, that end goal you want to go. So it's not as easy as just switching out all cars or starting to produce more wind power. So I, I think that the building industry is a little bit behind the curve and has to pick up but it is, it is possible to, to make buildings more efficient. And then in combination, then a more sustainable electric grid, of course, we could become carbon neutral by 2050. I think that's possible. But yeah, the building industry is slightly behind and really has to pick, pick it up. I think it's also important for architects and with buildings specifically that we never forget that we also have a tradition of architecture quality. So I think... Mm. It, it's very important to keep that in mind that it's not just the performance of the building, but it's also the beauty and the, the building quality, the architectural quality of the building. Mm. It's going to be very, very important in order to make that happen, that switch. And that's, that is a really, that's a very holistic approach to this problem is that can you make the solution irresistible? Can you maintain the beauty of a design to where you want to run towards the solution as opposed to running away from the problem? 
Exactly. Yeah. So that I think that that's a major point. Mm. Tesla or Apple, they are successful because they, of course, produce a product which everyone desires. It would be horrible if we just put uh, foam on our buildings and then call it a day. Sure. That's really an, a key point that it has to be desirable and it has to be beautiful otherwise. So to close us off and I take me on a journey, if all goes according to plan, if we move in the direction that we need to be going, what does the future begin to look like? Talk to me about five years out, this is what we're going to see. 10 years out, up to color in those lines for me a little bit, given your field and your expertise, what needs to occur? I, I think that there, certainly like the professional service industry, everyone has to be trained. There's a, a big market of, for training engineers and uh, architects and contractors, the execution of buildings, the education of occupants, someone who lives in the building, has to be basically educated. Anyone who operates a building has to be educated. So there's a, a large educational component for that. So that okay. has to happen. And then the industry has to really move towards that high performance and has to include it not as an add-on, but really as a part of your thinking. I think that's sure. important. Otherwise, we're not going to get there. So like when building fell down because it didn't have initially a structure engineer, then we, we trained engineers and we included engineers in the entire building design and from the beginning. So the climate engineering has to be part of that team. It has to be part of the entire thinking and design of a building. Great. We heard Biden talking a lot about that in terms of the rollout of his administrative strategy towards climate change. You're not just going to have the climate change department, but it's going to be embedded in the DNA of transportation, of homeland security, of whatever all these different industries or uh, sectors are all going to be, climate's going to live in all of them. Mm -hmm. And that's a little bit what I'm hearing from you. Yeah, I, I think it has to embed it on all levels, basically. And that, that's, okay. that's pretty true. And that's specifically true for buildings and the building industry. Okay. Given that happens, given that those are the conditions, then so then what will we start seeing? Will we start seeing contractors outside of every building over the next several years doing retrofit work? What what is that like visually? Yeah, I think it's, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's going to require a business cycle, uh, you know, up, up, obviously updating or upgrading all buildings. So that, that's a big job. And it's also a big job generator, right? So mm. it's going to be a big part of the business going forward. But I think the end result will be that buildings will be will expel much less pollution, right, in, into our city. So your air quality not just inside your building, but also mm. will be much, much better. You could imagine a, a town which is much quieter as well, mm. right? If you switch to electric cars and less noisy mechanical systems. So you, you could imagine a, a much quieter, much cleaner urban space, which might be more green as well. Andreas, this is perfect. I'm, I, I want to encourage everybody listening to check out passive, nypassivehouse.org to learn more about everything that we've just been discussing. What would you suggest people Google next other than your website? Is there like one building or a case study or something you're like, hey, if you want to see really a model of how this works, check this out. Yeah, we, we, we do a lot of events where you know, architects present their buildings. We have a project map, which maps out all the passive houses in New York. Hmm. And so you, you could visit that site as well and just join us, join some of the free events we, we do. We do a lot of you know, outreach and uh, education and just right. get, get involved. I think that's the, the key. 
This is great, Andreas. Thank you so much for your time today, for illuminating me with your brilliance and your vocabulary and adding yet another contextual lens to my approach to climate change and climate solutions. I'm super thankful for you and thankful for your work. Thanks. It was a pleasure to talk to you and thanks for inviting me and for that very open and... It's not easy being green. It's not easy.